Highnesses, Excellencies, Ladies and Gentlemen, a very, very good morning on what is the first official day of World Government Summit here at Dubai Expo 2020. And the title of this session, Are We Ready for a New World Order? Well, the organizers here are nothing if not ambitious. This is, I think you will agree, a daunting subject for discussion at just after 9 a.m. on a Wednesday morning here in the relative calm of Expo 2020. But tackle it, we must, because I believe what is clear is that we have hit an inflection point. We are certainly living in a unique age of uncertainty and volatility in global affairs. Whether you are from the global north or the global south, we have all collectively lived through the twilight zone that was the pandemic and the changes to our social, our digital, and our fiscal landscape that COVID-19 wrought. And just as the world re-emerges from the pandemic, we are faced with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which certainly feels like a transformative geopolitical moment. Coming as that does against a backdrop of great power struggles, the emergence of middle powers, of climate crisis, and cybersecurity challenges, the trend lines certainly seem to indicate a world headed in a disorderly direction. Is the US-led multilateral system created post-World War II to manage international relations so that the world would never again see and experience the same chaos and disorder of a world war? Is it anything like fit for purpose? And if not, what is the alternative? That is the purpose of this discussion today, so let's get on with it. His Excellency Anwar bin Mohammed Gargash is the diplomatic advisor to His Highness Sheikh Khalifa bin Zayed Al Nayan. Fred Kemp is the President and CEO of the Atlantic Council. Dr. George Friedman is founder and chairman of Geopolitics Futures. And Dr. Pippa Malmgren is economist and former US presidential advisor. You are well served with my esteemed panel this morning. Will you welcome them, please, to the stage? Excellency, are you ready for a new world order? I think, uh, Becky, the, pro the main problem is uh, if you think of the technology, the technology is 21st century, 22nd uh, century technology. What is happening in AI, what is happening uh, everywhere, really, that will really transform 
and is transforming our lives and also transforming uh, international relations. But I think the, uh, the frame of thinking is still 19th century. I think this is one of the problems that we have in the international system. Where if you look, we are still, it's still about nationalism, it's still about state sovereignty, it's still about use of force or non-use of source, force. And I think this is one of the major, major issues as uh, we try to, uh, to bridge really what is mentally uh, you know, governing international relations with the 19th century mode of thinking, but at the same time with technology fast, fast ahead of us in the curve. That I think will be a major problem. That's a very interesting perspective. Fred Kemp, your assessment. Um, uh, so my mentor on issues of world order is Henry Kissinger, so I'll try to channel him. And forgive me, Dr. Kissinger. But his answer would be, what do you mean no new world order? We have not had a world order yet. What we've had is we've had a Western order that was imposed on the world. And so the first world order in modern times, or somewhat modern times, was four centuries ago with the, with the Treaty of Westphalia, ending a century of conflict, the Thirty Years' War. And it wasn't uh, a great moral thrust. It was just recognizing the world as it was. If you look at what we're trying to create right now, uh, where I would say at an inflection point in history, as important as the end of World War I, where we got the effort at world order tragically wrong. Uh, we ended up with millions of dead, the Holocaust, in World War II. After World War II, we got more right than wrong with the creation of the International Liberal Order and the United Nations and the Bretton Woods uh, uh, system and the European Coal and Steel Community, NATO, etc. And then Soviet Union fell, and then the Cold War uh, we thought it was the end of history, and we thought that everyone could fit into this system that had been created, and it worked for a while, uh, but not everybody came into it. Uh, but China grew. China uh, certainly uh, took uh, full advantage of being part of the global system. Uh, Russia did not. Russia became more of an outlier. And I think where we are now, and this gets to your question, Becky, of a new world order, is uh, it can go in two directions with the war in Ukraine now being a decisive element. Either the jungle is back, as the historian Bob Kagan talks, and, and that we can go into a darker era, um, or we could go into an era because of the advances of science, advances of technology, that could be one of the most prosperous, promising, progressive, enlightened, moderate, modern eras that we've ever faced. And I think we're in a moment where that's being decided, and I think the importance of the Ukraine issue is that it's a fulcrum for this, and how the world manages this and comes out of this is going to have far-reaching consequences that go beyond Ukraine. Thank you. Pippa, the U.S. President, and I steal a line from the Washington <coughs> Post here, their national uh, columnist who is um, a terrific uh, writer. U.S. President has framed the tension of this moment as pitting democracy versus autocracy. That is a controversial position uh, coming as it does um, from the U.S. President. Do you agree? And how does, how does that framing fit into our wider discussion today? 
Well, I think the word framing is correct. Mm. Uh, I wrote a piece in late October saying we're already in World War III. We are already in conflict that extends so far beyond Ukraine, actually, mm. even within the context of Western Europe. But we've clearly been pretty much at war in space, uh, below the surface of the oceans, submarine warfare between superpowers. Uh, I wouldn't even say that this has been happening for at least four years, and it's spilled over into public view on the ground. Uh, but we don't frame it that way. Uh, also, this idea that it's one kind of uh, political organization system versus another, but really it looks to me like old-fashioned superpower conflicts. Um, where I'm very optimistic, and I agree with you about how to frame the future, what I see as someone involved in technology, someone involved with entrepreneurs and advising governments, I see a future where we genuinely have ubiquity and not scarcity. I see a future where the internet is available for free mm -hmm. for everyone in the most remote locations on the planet, for example. And that means the location of power is going to shift. And I see, as a person in financial markets, decentralization of power structures everywhere, in finance, in political power, um, and in fact, this conflict that we're in right now may be the beginning of that shift. I certainly see many people from the industrialized world looking very actively to move to places that they used to consider emerging markets, mm -hmm. uh, to build businesses there, to expand there. So uh, I also think to finish, this idea that autocracies have an advantage over democracies, I will fight that tooth and nail. I don't think it is correct, and I think our, our view that just because, for example, China had a more autocratic approach made them more successful is unproven by time. And we are going to find the places that allow the entrepreneurial spirit to thrive the most and give the greatest political latitude are the ones that are going to grow the best. Thank you, Pippa. George, your assessment, briefly. I think human beings live their lives in a storm and nations live their lives in a storm. And we're gifted with nostalgia. We remember times that never were and long for them. So we are now in a normal condition of humans. We love those we love, we hate those we hate, we fight, we make up. And human beings are this thing. But it is the most interesting thing that we remember things that we never ever were. We remember a time where this tension of love and hate didn't exist. We remember a time that if we could only get back to, all would be well. And sometimes we imagine that if I have uh, the internet, that will take me home. But there is no going home, we are at home. And we have to be at peace with where we are. And there is no time that has ever been at peace with the chaos that it was surrounded by. And that's the tragedy of the human condition. And it's Greatness. Right, thank you. Um, your positions are quite clear. Dr. Anwar Gargash then, let's just start with you. If, if we are looking at a new world order, a new world order that is, as Pippa describes it, decentralized, if we are looking at a new world that is not a, a sing, single power based, as it were, and a world that is layered by 
these what feel like very new global issues of climate change, of cybersecurity, as you suggest, of technology and the speed of that. What does that mean for this region? Because the perspective that we discuss world order through, as Fred has rightly pointed out, has been a Western perspective. My sense is that we must stop doing that. So what, what is the impact well, on I think, this region? I think to start with, uh, Becky, the region has to catch up. Mm. I mean, the region is really uh, behind various other regions uh, in, uh, in the world. And I think it's by uh, prioritizing its own uh, politics and prioritizing its own polarizing wars and, and confrontations. The region really, I think, number one, uh, as the world is becoming multipolar, and I believe it is, and I agree also with the idea that this multipolarity is moving from economic to, uh, from political to economic to what I would call even currency multipolarity as we move forward. I think the region is uh, really going through two phases. Number one is witnessing the, uh, the sort of uh, upper structure changing, but it has to catch up. And it has to catch up by emphasizing, in my opinion, uh, non-political issues. Some of them are global issues, the ones you mm. mentioned, and certainly COVID is a clear test of what we should be concentrating on food security and cyber uh, capability and uh, uh, climate change and others. But more fundamentally, I think the region lags behind in terms of uh, multi, uh, you know, multi, uh, projects of, of integration, economic mm. integration, etc. I mean, if you just look at the GCC, for example, the GCC has never really been a big success when it comes to uh, political direction. It has had varied views there. But it's been a huge success, really, in creating what I would call a common market. So I think the region needs to catch up before it actually becomes a major player. Otherwise, it will be very much subservient to this multipolarity that we're talking about. And I want to come back to you um, for, for a sense from you, which I think would be extremely useful for this audience, as to what is going on behind the scenes here. When I say behind the scenes, it's very visible um, that there is enormous change in this region. Witness the, uh, the meeting in the Negev Desert uh, summit um, attended by the uh, foreign minister here, um, His Highness Sheikh Abdullah, bin Zayed, four Arab foreign ministers meeting in the Negev desert with the uh, Israelis. I mean, if you told me that that was going to happen three years ago, two years ago, even you know, a couple of weeks ago, I think I'd have still been surprised by that. So I do want to get, because I think that's very important, we get, you, we get your perspective as to what is going on behind the scenes. But thank you, Fred. Um, this sense that you, and you certainly see this here, that we are in a pivot with foreign policy to a policy that, that fundamentally and clearly serves economic needs, geopolitics to geoeconomics, as, as, as Dr. Amwar has suggested, I think is certainly an extremely important driver of what is going on today. But your sense, I want to get a sense of if we, you know, where we're at and the impact that this will have on global policy going forward and how this world is run. The, the impact of the economics of it all. Mm. Well, well, first of all, let's take a look at what makes up world orders. 
uh, world orders are that uh, a group of countries across the world agree to a set of rules, and they agree to play by them. The second is there's a balance of power uh, so that no power feels that uh, it can subjugate a neighbor. That's what we've lost in Russia. There wasn't a balance of power. Um, Europe decided the age of military power is over, and, 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 and so Russia is attempting to subjugate Ukraine. But then the third part of this is uh, a, a, a consensus that everyone accepts this. It's, it's almost too utopian to, to, to come about. And so what's emerging right now, which I think is a danger, is uh, a Chinese-centered order and a US-centered order, and that we're breaking down again. And that's not a healthy outcome. It's not the outcome we want. Uh, but that gets to the economics. And that's what I wanted to touch on, because the economics are that China, I think in 2016-17, uh, uh, invested $53 billion in the United States. Last year, $1 billion. So there's already a decoupling. There's already a breaking down. And the question is, how does this play out right now? And so I think you're going to see, in an economic sense, you're going to see these two worlds but it's not going to be that neat. I think you're going to see the evolution of regional organizations. And the regional, because it's so hard to create a world order, I think you're going to see regional orders spring up. And then you have links between regional orders. But they will be very much guided by economic interests, social interests, and also uh, security interests. You see things like the Quad, like the Abraham Accords. Uh, so ad hoc, not, not inflexible alliances. And, and that seems to me what's emerging at the moment. Should should countries, governments, be forced to make a choice, to take a side at this point, Pippa? I mean, certainly, again, this is a big narrative here. You know, this is two, you know, this is, the, this is a struggle by two great powers. I use the term great loosely to a certain extent, but, you know, two great powers. And, and, and others being forced to take a choice. I think this speaks to this kind of emergence of these regional powers and the emergence of the middle powers here because we're hearing quite frankly don't force us into a corner here are they right well it may be a bit late for that uh i remember talking to an australian diplomat at one point about this break between the u.s and china and said you know both sides are going to say whose team are you on mm. and he said our job is to make sure the question never arises but the question has arisen and so I think we have to go deeper. And it's not about the US versus China. It's about what underpins a world order is always the financial system. Mm. I, I was very privileged. My father was an advisor to Nixon when they came off the gold standard in 71. And so I was brought up with a kind of inside view of how very important the financial structure is to absolutely everything else. And what we're seeing in the world today, I think, is we are on the brink of a dramatic change where we are about to, and I'll say this boldly, we're about to abandon the traditional system of money and accounting and introduce a new one. And the new one, the new accounting, is what we call blockchain. It means digital. It means having an almost perfect record of every single transaction that happens in the economy, which will give us far greater clarity over what's going on. It also raises huge dangers in terms of the balance of power between states and citizens. In my opinion, we're going to need a digital constitution of human rights if we're going to have digital money. Uh, but also, this new money will be 
sovereign in nature. Most people think that digital money is crypto and private, but what I see are superpowers introducing digital currency. The Chinese were the first. The US is on the brink, I think, of moving in the same direction. The Europeans have committed to that as well. And the question is, will that new system of digital money and digital accounting accommodate the competing needs of the citizens of all these locations so that every human being has a chance to have a better life? Because that's the only measure of whether our world order really serves. George, what do you believe the biggest shift will be? Well, there's always a major shift in great powers. Uh, the world in 1945 was defined in a certain way. In 1991, the Soviet Union collapsed. Mm. Maastricht was written. The Japanese economic miracle turned out to be <coughs> a miracle, and, and so on. So in 1991, we had a change. We are now having another change. The first, we are discovering that Russia is not a great power. Economically, it lags behind South Korea. Militarily, it has shown itself not to be significant. Mm. It is a military. It is a nuclear power. We've also seen that in China, although it has had a magnificent run for 40 years, has now entered a period of economic dysfunction. Its uh, economy, its, uh, its financial system and such has to be restructured. Mm. These restructurings aren't easy, and they are never come without political problems. So it's a great power, but how it plays out the game is, mm. is another question. But one thing we've discovered, I think, in this crisis the enormous power of the United States, which has been forgotten. But the way the Americans were able to use the dollar as a weapon to put the Russians on defensive, the manner in which the United States was able to rally uh, NATO uh, to this common cause, I mean, when we look at the way we thought of the world a while ago, it's different now. No, and that I, I, and you're making a very good point. I guess the, that begs the question, how long does that last? Oh, not very long. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, I mean, It look, also begs the question, so not, go on, go on. When 1945 went to 1999, mm. 1999 went to this point, if this is a transitory point, mm. and every 20, 30, 40 years, we have a transition in the world, and that should not be unexpected. We are a dynamic people and we will change the way we live, and the system will change, and we will have to align ourselves with it. You made a point about, you know, the, the US, and I'm not sure if you actually use the term, forgive me if I'm, I'm putting words in your mouth, but has weaponized the dollar to a certain extent, um, or has used the dollar. You've seen the power of the dollar at a time when, as Pippa rightly points out, should we be looking at, you know, the sort of, uh, the, the, uh, the fiat that we have used over the past X amount of years as anything like uh, useful going forward, or is that redundant? And if it is, as yet, still not redundant, is it the dollar, or is it the Chinese currency? And we have seen the efforts or the noises made by the uh, Kingdom of Saudi Arabia recently, just to suggest that it doesn't have to be the US currency, that is the uh, currency of repute going forward. You're all making some absolutely fascinating points. I think, you know, with, with 15 minutes left of what is a ridiculously short panel, as far as I'm concerned, I think it's important um, to get a sense from you all as to how you believe governments will navigate the new global dynamics to shape a better future, which brings me very neatly to 
if you will, Dr. Anwar, just, just explain, if you can, you know, what is going on in this region at present? Well, I think, uh, first of all, we've gone through a very difficult uh, and torturing decade. Mm. And I think, uh, from the UAE's perspective, we need to turn the page uh, and start a new page. And that uh, new page is basically reaching out to uh, various uh, friends, of course, but adversaries also, and to uh, make sure that you, you know, we rebuild these bridges. We, we're not going to agree uh, with everything they want to do, etc. And the Middle East, really, uh, going back to the to the Najaf uh, summit, the Middle East is not really only about Iran, and the Middle East is not mm -hmm. only. Uh, about Israel. Because you could be confused by that. Yeah, you could be sure. confused. You could be confused. And I think our whole uh, intention is to uh, find a way of functionally working with Iran. Mm -hmm. Our whole uh, intention is to make sure that there is an agenda of stability and prosperity in the region that includes Iran and, and others. But I think the other also important element that you should not, uh, you know, have, uh, you know, be blindsided by energy is coming back as a major component of many of uh, the Middle East and indeed uh, world discussion. What people thought uh, was the death of uh, carbon fossil energy, fuels. of fossil fuels, etc., is, uh, I think, a little bit premature. And I think you're seeing that also coming out uh, in many of these discussions. I want to come back to uh, the whole issue of this uh, issue between uh, democracy mm. and authoritarianism. I think that this uh, sort of binary mm. is, from our perspective, is not the one we see. I think there are so many shades uh, in between. And I think, uh, for example, in COVID, it was really government efficacy that really identified mm. who did well and who didn't do well. But I believe that you do ultimately need, uh, perhaps in the middle between these two, you need something called governance. I think if uh, every uh, democratic attempt in the Arab world has turned ideological or tribal, so I'm not sure that this is really something that we can actually uh, uh, you know, uh, work out very successfully here. But we do need governance. And governance, of course, includes a lot of components that are there, and I think this is perhaps the, the middle between the two uh, binaries that you mentioned. Fred. Yeah, and, and, and Becky, I think I can pick up on Dr. Gargash because I, I agree with him completely that it's, it's a, it, in a way, it's a false narrative. Um, uh, the issue is government effectiveness and whether the people consider the government to be legitimate. Democracy is one way to achieve that. There are other ways to achieve it. And the legitimacy is gained by uh, governments that can deliver the goods, effectiveness to their people, <coughs> can deliver freedom, which people want, so ensure human rights, ensure freedom, but at the same time ensure order, ensure, mm. ensure safety, ensure health care. Um, and, uh, and I think this new era of technological change going faster all the time, whether it's quantum computing or artificial intelligence or bioengineering, um, you know, these technologies are uh, morally neutral. Uh, and so the technologies can be used to enlighten, they can be used to gov deliver government services better, 
They can use, be used to repress. They can be used uh, 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 you know, to surveil in, in a way that, uh, that is, is, would be unhealthy. Um, and so I think to me that's really important. I'm going to say just one other brief thing on sanctions because I wanted to say this. Um, the dollar, um, uh, everyone's been predicting the demise of the dollar for a long time. Mm. And I think it has a long tail. But if you overuse sanctions, <coughs> more and more people will try to find a way around them. But Putin, since 2014, moved as far away as he could from the dollar in the U.S. And still, the G7 froze for the first time in history the uh, assets of a central bank, a G20 central bank. It wasn't because the U.S. did it. It's because the G7 did it. Mm. Without the U.S. and Europe together. And so I think it's really going to be a coalition of factors that will sort of decide uh, whether or not uh, you know, uh, one, one punishes. But I do think the dollar will last for a while yet. Uh, but it's not going to be uh, America alone. It's not going to be America first. It's got, it's got to be America with others. And that's the only way uh, with our relative size and weight and GDP reducing that, that the United States will indeed have influence in the world if, it be, if, if the country just becomes much cleverer mm. in building coalitions and working together with partnerships. Eva. So I find it very difficult to talk about the world order that we're coming into given how very tenuous and unstable the current environment mm. is. In my lifetime, this is the second time that I have seen the superpowers actually threaten the possibility of nuclear mm. war. Mm. Um, it's almost unimaginable to anyone who doesn't remember from last time, who isn't old enough. It's unimaginable from three months ago, yeah. quite frankly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, the nature of this conflict that's currently underway, I think is so deeply misunderstood, not framed properly. As a small example, I think the way the Russian side sees this conflict. If you were to take a map of Europe, it would start in uh, Norway and move down through Kaliningrad, through the Slovaki Gap, into Belarus, down the border of Ukraine, to Odessa, to the Russian fleet in the Mediterranean, into Libya, Egypt, where there's already enormous Russian presence by the way, one side story, we've been privatizing militia for some years, and we have private armies, both on the American side and the Russian side, that now are fighting all the way down to the southern tip of Africa. That is a very different view than this is just Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And so getting a grip on what is the actual nature of this argument, and where is it occurring? George, we were talking earlier because George is writing a book on space warfare. And I was saying, we've had so many incidents between the Chinese and the Americans, the Russians and the Americans, mm. destroying satellites, creating debris fields to try to mess up the other side's satellite capability. Every one of us depends on these satellites to conduct our daily life. But we have outright conflict happening in that space. So when we ask, what is the new world order going to look like, the answer is so much depends on how we handle what's happening now, which we can't even mm -hmm. agree upon. Just one last thing, because it's so essential to this region, um, is the extraordinary hit to the supply chain of food. Mm -hmm. And I think we cannot leave this event without speaking about the need to prepare now 
to prevent a catastrophe mm. because the loss of the fertilizers from both Russia and Belarus, mm -hmm. the enormous increase in the oil price, which directly hits farmers around the world, already has caused a jump in the wheat price, which is the single most important foodstuff for this region. And last time we saw this, that was a major contributing factor to the Arab Spring. So now is the time to think through how will we solve this? Mm. And that will be part of the answer of what will the new order work like. George, I'd love to get your, your thoughts on, on what's going up on <laughs> away from Mother Earth, as it were. And I know that you, 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 you I'm very much looking forward to the book that you're writing about uh, um, uh, space warfare. But I do want to just pick up on one thing, because I think it's important that you said just earlier on, you talked to or alluded to, pointed out that there has been this you know, coming together of, of the West over the uh, invasion of Ukraine. And we are talking there, by the way, about 27 countries of the, you know, what, 192-odd countries that there are in the world. And as much as we saw the sort of, you know, agreement uh, to condemn what was going on by 140 countries uh, at the UN, this is a non-binding agreement. And, you know, we've got 27 countries, ultimately, who have unified. Um, that's their position. It is not necessarily the position of many other countries uh, in the world. But as we see those Western governments looking to navigate what is this new dynamic in what is a bunch of new global sort of dynamics to shape, I guess, a better future, that must be the intention. So what do we make of the end of the speech by President Biden in Warsaw the other day, when, and this has been walked back, of course, by the White House, but I think it's important to, to just pursue this. The fact that the president of Russia, Vladimir Putin, he said, should not stay in office or cannot stay in office. Now, I point out once again that the White House has walked this back. They've said he isn't calling for regime change. But as we consider how governments navigate this future, What's your assessment and, uh, and the potential impact well, of that? I'd like us to think of the 20th century. It was a constantly dangerous century. Whenever some peace broke out, danger lurked. We're in the same position. What we have learned during this is that we're in a dangerous world, that events that we don't anticipate may define who we are, that it's very difficult to handle and very dangerous. But the president spoke of getting rid of uh, Putin. Well, many of us spoke of getting rid of Putin. But this is the U.S. president. Yes, I understand. Out loud on a public platform. All right. Well, we spoke of getting rid of Hitler and others. So we may have a discussion. The idea that American president speaking about getting rid of a hostile foreign leader is not particularly novel. Of course, the press is shocked. Shocked, I say, to hear such talk. That's not the important thing. The important thing to understand is that the period in which we thought it was no longer dangerous has turned out to be false, mm. that these dangers are there. And when I talk about space, space is going to be a realm of warfare because everything is a realm of warfare. It's also the realm of security. Mm. So what we really have to understand is that the 20th century's end didn't end danger. That's still there. And the really shocking thing it was not that Biden said this about Putin. It's the degree to which there's disbelief that this is happening, mm. as if this hasn't happened mm. before. And that disbelief is dangerous, because that means nations are not prepared. So Otto von Bismarck said, the art of diplomacy is about giving others ladders to climb down. 
from untenable positions. And I fear that the current position of the United States is very much, we can win this, mm. as opposed to we need to find an off-ramp. We need to find an exit. We need to get back to a negotiating table. We may have disagreements, but resolving them in a battlefield is not the right way to do it. And we may have forgotten that art of diplomacy. Fred. Well, revealing my bias, I'm wearing uh, the uh, Ukrainian colors. <laughs> Um, and uh, I, 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 uh, Biden's speech, the unfortunate thing about what he, he said about Putin uh, was that it uh, detracted from a speech that is one of the most brilliant speeches, maybe the most important speech of his lifetime. Uh, and it really put the Ukraine situation in a broader, uh, in a world order sort of framework, the, what we're talking about today. And he did it absolutely brilliantly. And he talked about how the darkest periods of history uh, can produce the most progress. He quoted uh, uh, the, the Polish Pope, John Paul II, on uh, do not be afraid at the beginning of, uh, of, of the end of uh, repression in Poland in the beginning of a road to democracy. And so I think that was exciting. I, I, I've known Senator Biden, Vice President Biden for a long time. Uh, th that was not a mistake. Uh, and it may not have been in his talking points, but you have to watch the clip. Mm. He planned to say that. Uh, and he now has defended it himself mm. in saying, look, I don't want to be about regime change. I'm just saying this kind of person, I'm paraphrasing now, this kind of person who has launched an unprovoked, illegal, criminal war only because his neighbors wanted sovereignty, independence, and democracy, uh, doesn't have, uh, his own people ought to be asking whether he's in the right place or not. And so, I, 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 so let, let, let the president have a break on this one. He's not calling for regime change. It's, it's a good story for a few days. But the fact of the matter is it was a brilliant speech. It was a brilliant framing. And what Putin has achieved, and I would say to a certain extent President Xi, is there is a unification right now. There's a unity in NATO. There's a unity among Western democracy, and I would say among and, and again, I, I am also careful, Dr. Gargash, about mm. this issue of democracy and autocracy. I really think it's the forces of civilization and the forces mm -hmm. of the jungle. It's forces of moderation, the forces of backwardness. And, and I think these, the forces of modernization, the forces of good, the forces of uh, progress going into the future are unifying again. And they were a bit on their back foot over the last decade. Do you agree, Dr. I, I, I think everybody speaks with his own background, his own experiences. And with and his think, own or her own I lens. Think, yeah, I think that's, <clears throat> that's natural. But coming back, I think coming from a region of forever wars, complicated issues, mm. uh, and you know, we've gone through Afghanistan, we've gone through Iraq, we've gone, uh, I think one of the things that uh, we notice, for example, is if you allow a conflict to take a long time, then you have what I would call byproducts of the conflict. And I just think about the instability in Iraq and the war in Syria and the birth of ISIS, for example. If we had been able to resolve that issue mm -hmm. earlier, we would not have had the repercussions. So I'm very much with the latter thing, is I think that we do need in Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine is going to be a significant change in the international order. And I think the repercussions are going to be uh, quite deep and prolonged. But I think we do really need to find a political solution, and it starts with a ceasefire and a political solution, mm. ASAP. We need to do that because the danger of horizontal or vertical escalation 
is real, mm -hmm. and I think we should not, uh, you know, diminish the idea of that sort of, uh, of, of escalation. That's it. I'm sorry. I feel that this could have been uh, much longer. I wish it had been. Um, I know that you are all here, so for the audience, um, I'm sure that you are all um, eager to continue this conversation. Uh, it cannot be completed in 40 minutes, but we've given it a good go, I hope you agree. Um, certainly, your perspectives are incredibly invaluable, as we said, at what is a very transformative time. Are we ready? I don't know. Are we at an inflection point? I think we all agree that we are. Thank you very much indeed um, for being with us today and to my esteemed panel. Thank you. I'm very grateful. Thank you, Victor. Prince Abdulaziz, um, the Minister of Energy from Saudi Arabia. We're also joined by His Excellency Masroor Barzani. He is the Prime Minister of the KRG. And of course, His Excellency Suhail Mizrui, the Minister of Energy right here in the UAE. Gentlemen, welcome. And thank you so much for taking part in a dialogue which, frankly, um, is at the forefront of so many conversations that we're having on CNBC today. I just want to take a moment and ask each of you to have a think about how dangerous you find the world to be today. We're talking about inflation, the prospect of stagflation. We're talking about higher energy prices. We're talking about people struggling to afford the basics of life at a time when there is rising violence. And I am not just talking about the conflict in Ukraine today. I'm also talking about the attacks right here at home in the region. Your Royal Highness. Well, you have to define for me 
what do you mean by danger? There is quite a few definitions now of danger. Uh, I can speak a lot about the type of danger that we were, ha were having here in the region, and it's quite multifaceted, uh, to be honest. Uh, one that has to do with uh, deep, deep national security issues, such as safety of people, first and foremost, such as the ability to continue running our economy uh, at all levels, including ensuring that we continue supplying the world with the required energy. And as you have seen last week, we have made a, a political statement saying clearly that we are no longer responsible on the issue of security of supply, fundamentally because we don't see uh, that uh, there is enough attendance to this issue, collective, uh, comprehensive uh, attendance to this issue. So there is a serious issue for us. It certainly it goes without saying that if this uh, security of supply is impacted, it would impact us, certainly our economy, our well-being, uh, our people. But more fundamentally, I think it's also will affect the world economy. So you are into a, a period of jittery period defined by unfortunate uh, narrow band approaches where people uh, are focused on their regional issues without looking comprehensively to the impact, the global impact. Sir, and just to follow on to that, was it a mistake for the United States to remove its Patriot missiles from Saudi Arabia? No, I'm not. I'm not uh, into that business. My job is an energy minister. <laughs> but know, it does I, impact I, I, energy because I, they're targeting I know, I, know, I know how to move oil and I know how to move gas, but I know and I've seen and the world has seen what it means to have a, a city uh, that was supposed to enjoy and did we did enjoy and we will continue to enjoy our living. Uh, formula, you know, the race of Formula One, but two nights before that, uh, um, some rockets that falls into uh, pump stations and what have you, and disrupt uh, the going concern of our lives, uh, disrupt our environment, and uh, put to question uh, the, uh, our ability to supply the world with the necessary in energy uh, requirements. Well, uh, in the old days, we, along with our friends here in the UAE, uh, worked on a, a collective effort to assure and ensure energy security. If these pillars are no longer there, uh, I don't think it is, it should not be too presumptuous that we can handle it. Uh, ourselves alone, be it ourselves as Saudi Arabia. I don't want to speak on behalf of the UAE, but I think I can share with you the thought that we as a GCC country, uh, we have developed and de delivered our side of the story. People, others need to deliver their own side of the commitment. Otherwise, the very pillar of energy security will be Dis uh, disturbed, to say the least. Prime Minister.
Well, I, I believe that in different regions, uh, people have a different definition for danger. Uh, whether the world is a dangerous place to all or not would depend on who you're asking. Uh, of course, there is danger against your own existence. It's about security challenges, economic challenges, food security. All of these can be challenges that we all face at different times. Uh, it's the players, actually, that pose the danger against others. So it's the behavior of the actors that can be studied, that needs to be studied, to see what the intentions are and what they want to do. In our case, we see that there is a lot of interferences in, in our region. And unfortunately, sometimes when you see injustice, when you see inequality, there is always the possibility of different reactions to it. And it's the clash of these sort of behaviors that sometimes leads to a dangerous situation. In our case, it's, uh, uh, it's always been a dangerous situation for us. And today, with uh, the deterioration of the security in other parts of the world, that the level of danger in our region has also increased. When people feel poorer, they are more likely to uh, do irrational things, and, and their behaviors change according to that. We've seen that in the past, when the rise of uh, terrorist organizations. One of the reasons why uh, some people collaborate with terrorism is because they feel uh, injustice and inequality. They feel oppression. And that's what really leads to people to take uh, actions. And that's also true for the states. States are also looking at their interests. And what is uh, interesting or can be beneficial to a state may be a danger to another. So once again, the definition of danger uh, varies from place to place. Yeah. Uh, but I, I believe the world is always can be a dangerous place if we don't control the behavior of the actors. Yeah. You're excellent, Dave. Well, uh, I think I agree. The definition of, of danger varies from one region to another, from one country to another. But I think if we can agree on one thing, the, uh, what is dangerous is poverty, and what is dangerous is, is, is the... And poverty push to terrorism, and those people could be target. So... The, we lived in, in a kind of, of uh, a, a, a hope uh, prior to, the, to, to COVID. We had with COVID, and everyone was looking to recover and to build prosperity further. Uh, we are uh, due to, to the geopolitics, the energy security becoming, uh, becoming a priority now, and some countries are forgetting the affordability. And I'm worried about the affordability. Uh, that's why His Royal Highness, myself, and, and all of our partners in OPEC Plus were trying to maintain that order and bring uh, resources to the market as much as we can at a pace that is reasonable for us. And for that to happen, we need resources, financial resources. We need to invest. 
and we need to decouple politics from energy availability and energy affordability. I'm worried that because we are mixing the two, we could end up in a situation where energy affordability becoming an issue, and that would definitely lead to ultimately to poverty and ultimately could lead to, to a, a stagnation of the world of all the economy. So we are trying, but we cannot be blamed for everything. We're doing our best. And uh, I am worried that if we don't tackle the affordability element other than the energy security and the sustainability, which is also very important. So six months ago, we were focusing on sustainability. That was the aim, and no one thought about the energy supply, security, and all of that. And suddenly now we're shifting to another element, which is energy security. So we need to have it, and we're selective uh, from one source to another. And I am sure the next is going to be energy affordability and resources of, uh, in, in that sense, because food security is, is becoming an issue, and industrial commodities uh, or, 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 uh, or minerals are becoming an issue as well. So my, the risk I see is, or the danger is poverty, which, is, which could lead to people uh, having to go and join those terrorist groups. And we are one of those reason, regions that are, got attacked by terrorist organizations and terrorist groups. And that needs to stop as well if we are going to be committed to develop more resources in the future. Your Royal Highness, yesterday when I was uh, sitting in an exclusive interview with His Excellency Al-Nasrui, he told me that Russia is an important part of the OPEC Plus alliance. It is the plus in OPEC Plus. Um, and that they will remain a part of the alliance. Uh, I don't think if, I just want people to pause and think of the last two years and ask this question. If it wasn't for OPEC Plus, what would have happened to energy security, energy sustainability, and energy market stability? And that, and I go by not only oil, but the broader perspectives of energy. Uh, so I'm not going to be uh, attending for what uh, Russia may do or may do not, but Russia is a country that produces uh, roughly 10 something million barrels a day, which is almost 10% of what the world is consuming. Uh, it also produces a good amount of gas and a major component of the gas. So my uh, reaction to your uh, question is, has to do with the sizable contribution uh, it makes. Now, uh, I listened to Sahel from afar on what he said yesterday about the relevance of the contribution of Russia. I know that we are getting into a tacky, you know, uh, uh, tiptoeing uh, issue. I certainly believe that if it wasn't for OPEC plus existence, we would not be celebrating 
a sustainable energy market to its level with the even today's uh, uh, volatility, because volatility would have been even worse. If OPEC if plus it was, if it, if were not OPEC together. were not together and did not exist and did not attend to the market, again, let's not forget that April 2020, we had a negative crisis. And if it wasn't for OPEC plus existing, that negative prices may could have stayed with us for a few more months. I don't know. For until so many people would be ouching and ouching and ouching until more and more barrels would be out of the market. And as you have seen, some of these barrels that went out of the market did not come back. And there are people, serious people, that they wouldn't like to bring more barrels, but the barrels are not coming because the storyline. Uh, sorry, sir, if I can take some more time. Uh, my great friend Sultan and I, we were in Glasgow. Uh, he was kind enough to be with me that day when I made my speech. I'm not going to, you know, bet on people's memory that they probably would forget. You could find it, you could see it. In Glasgow, I made a speech, the last paragraph of that speech. I enumerated three things, and it was in Glasgow when everybody was talking about, as Sir was saying, about sustainability, climate change, climate change, climate change. I said, and I would repeat, and I would differ with uh, uh, Dan Jurgen because I was the one who first mentioned security <laughs> of supply at that meeting. I said, the pillars of what we do should be energy security, Second, economic sustainability and growth and prosperity. Third, and I'm not ranking, but actually I call them the three pillars, climate change attendance. But truly, you cannot attend to climate change without getting energy security. And certainly, if you don't have energy security, you would not have economic prosperity, you would not have economic growth, and if you don't have the two, you would not lose the means of attending to climate change. Yes. In that day, I can see it in faces. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, he's a representative of Saudi Arabia bragging about these things. Well, here comes Johnny. Look at what was happening today. Who's talking about climate change now? Yeah. Who's talking about but attending to energy security, first and foremost? Look at the countries that juggled their own energy mix. Look at how much people are advancing the idea of thoughts. We should focus on energy, on oil and gas, and we are pro-producing oil and gas. And pro, and pro, hallelujah, pro-using <laughs> coal. You're pro-using coal. No, You're, they are. They are. Your Royal Highness, though there is a moral question, and it's something that a lot of us have been talking about over the last several days here at the World Government Summit, um, which is, of course, the invasion of Ukraine. How do you respond to the critics of OPEC at this point who say you have a moral responsibility Absolutely, we have to reject to, Russia as a member? All of, most, all of well, what I know about Saudi Arabia is that we have voted at the UN clearly, emphatically. We along with so many uh, 
our friends here. I think UAE also did that. Uh, and we have really separated the issue. The moral, ethical, political thing, I think there is a platform and there is a forum for it. And we discharge our own beliefs, uh, which is consistent with everybody's belief as far as I know. Now, when it comes to OPEC Plus, uh, OPEC as OPEC priority, and I would take that privilege of saying I've been at it for the last 35 years, and I know how we managed to compartmentalize our political differences from what is good for the common good or the common good of all of us. That culture seeped into OPEC Plus. Yes. So when we get into that OPEC meeting room or OPEC building, as you may recall, everybody leaves his politics at the outside door of that building. And that culture has been with us. So if we don't do that, we would not have dealt with so many countries at different times. It could have been with Iraq at one point, it could have been with Iran at one point, it could have been with others as Saudi Arabia. Uh, the reason we have managed to maintain OPEC and maintain OPEC Plus is we discuss these matters and these issues in an entirely, entirely silo type of approach whereby we are much more focused on the common good regardless of the politics. Your Excellency, um, Mr. Masrui, when you think about that with regards to the conversation we had a week before Putin decided to invade Ukraine, you told me that you had no indication uh, as a member of OPEC Plus that there was any invasion forthcoming. You didn't think you would go in. As you gentlemen have so often said to me, the purpose of OPEC, the purpose of OPEC Plus is to stabilize the market, provide stability. How can you possibly trust a partner who literally destabilized global energy prices by invading Ukraine? Which basically, fundamentally, took a well, dig at what you guys are trying to do. Well, if we mix politics to what we are doing in OPEC, I remember in OPEC and in OPEC Plus, we had countries in war, and they are both partners. We did not take a side. And we're not taking a side today or saying this is right or this is wrong when we are inside the, that organization. We have one mission, and only mission, which is stabilizing the market. So we cannot be politicizing the, or bringing politics into the organization and having that debate. There are other entities or, or ministries that are in charge of that. Our aim is to calm the market, trying to come up with volumes as much as possible. And if we are asking anyone to leave, then we are raising the prices. Then we are doing something that is against what the consumers want. What the consumers are crying for in many countries around the world who cannot probably have uh, to afford the, where the prices could go are, calm, are asking us to calm the prices, try to bring more resources. How can we contradict with that objective, which serves the whole world by bringing an affordable sources of energy by squeezing or asking to squeeze some of the partners out. We cannot. I mean, if a country decides unilaterally, or two countries, or five countries, they have all the right to select from which resources they buy. 
But we cannot, we cannot decide for all of the countries in the world and say, you cannot buy these barrels. I think that is something that is outside the OPEC. If uh, another organization is, is deciding that, uh, and we had sanctions on Iran, we had sanctions on Venezuela, and they were respected members, and we did not do anything against them. So we've been there. We have seen crises. We have seen wars. And, uh, and we stayed uh, uh, at course, and, and we delivered. Just to complement what uh, Suhail was saying, I ask you, who is being throwing these rockets and missiles at us and at Abu Dhabi? Who is financing? Who is training? Who is supplying these weaponry? Is a member of OPEC. I leave it for your imagination. <laughs> Prime Minister, I want to bring you into this conversation because, as His Royal Highness pointed out, um, cynical minds sometimes help. <laughs> this is why, literally, I love this subject. Um, Prime Minister, so not only has the UAE and Saudi Arabia been again and again the target of malign influences from Iran, and I'm talking about the Iranian Revolutionary Guard and their proxies, the Houthi rockets that are coming um, over the border targeting oil and gas infrastructure, um, as well as civilians. But you at home are also a victim of Iranian aggression. Two questions. Are you worried about the fact that the United States seems to be rushing into a new JCPOA deal without a second track to address the malign activities of Iran? And when you take a step back and think about this a bit more broadly about your own uh, economy, how damaging do you believe Iranian aggression is to the KRG specifically? Well, uh, we have been victims of uh, these sorts of aggression uh, for a long time uh, from different sides and different players. Uh, this time, uh, the, uh, the rocket attacks against Erbil was unjustified. Uh, the allegations are baseless. And, and you're talking about the accusation that Israelis were in that building yes. or that they were part of the conversations? Well, that's what they say. I mean, basically, they uh, attacked the res residence of a private citizen, a businessman. Uh, and then to justify their action, they were saying that they had hit the base uh, of uh, Israelis, which is not true. I mean, this is a But Israelis language. are part of the dialogue, or uh, Absolutely not. I mean, they have nothing to do with this. Uh, they, uh, you know, they, they launched these attacks against us in that area, but uh, again, they had to justify it to the international community. And uh, we, uh, uh, we called for an international investigation we called on the Iraqi federal government and the parliament and also even invited the Iranians to visit the site and find for themselves that if their claims has any truth to it. Of course, it is, I mean, it's absolutely baseless. Uh, but we understand that this, uh, this is a pressure on us as we are moving forward to form the uh, new government in Iraq. Uh, the formation of the government uh, has not been the way that you know, they wanted. So this is a political pressure on the members of the alliance to basically withdraw from the alliance. 
and to let them increase or at least maintain their influence that they have enjoyed throughout these years in, in Iraq. So basically one of, the, one of the reasons for these attacks is to give us a warning and uh, also uh, to go back to the energy. We are one of the regions that are flourishing and are trying to become a main player in providing energy, not just to the region, but hopefully to, to Europe and to the rest of the world. As we are discovering more oil and gas fields, and we are trying to develop those areas, I mean, this is something that may not be in the interest of, uh, of the Iranians in this case. So that, that may also be another reason. Uh, but we are trying our best to uh, fill some of the gaps that is uh, that, that some of the, I mean, this war has left behind in the world, as in, in my speech yesterday I also said, that we are trying to uh, at least provide some of the shortages that exist in, 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 uh, uh, in, in the world. Now, the question is, are we allowed to go and do that? Yeah. Because again, we see that uh, not only the rockets are trying to stop us, but there are also institutions that have been manipulated. And you're talking about the government in Baghdad, you're talking yes. about the court. Yes, uh, that have been manipulated and they're trying to uh, stop us from uh, doing what we think would be in the best interest of, of our region and uh, the rest of Iraq and also the world. Do you believe that there's any progress you can make on that oil and gas law, are, given the current context? Yes, we are in, uh, uh, we, are, we are negotiating with the federal government. Uh, we are negotiating with uh, the Ministry of Oil. Mm -hmm. And we are insisting that we need to preserve our constitutional rights. Uh, they, you know, the Constitution stipulates and tells us exactly what our rights are and how we should uh, act. And, and also, the Iraqi government knows that. So this is really, it has nothing to do with the Constitution or with the legality of the process. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a political decision made by political appointees to basically put pressure on us at this stage. It's tough for you though, because when you talk to international investors, you've not only got this problem with Baghdad, but at the end of the day, you're also in severely in debt. Your pipeline's 60% owned by Rosneft, Russians. Um, and you've, you've got to wonder if that legal battle is going to be resolved in the near to medium term. It's a tough sell when the government in Baghdad is saying you're exporting you know, oil and gas illegally. Well, How do you make that case to the investor? First of all, we have to be careful about who is saying we are selling oil illegally. Uh, we have a constitution uh, that our rights are very clearly shown in, in the Constitution, so we know exactly what we, we can do and we can't do. And then we have a law that was passed by our parliament in 2007, whereas the federal government does not have a hydrocarbon law and still refers to the law that, uh, that's in 1976 from the previous regime. Iraq changed from a central government to a federal government, but the law hasn't changed. Yeah. We have a new constitution. The constitution calls for a hydrocarbon law. In 2007, again, we tried to pass that law at the federal level. It was, once again, the federal government that did not go ahead and uh, pass the law in, in the parliament. So a lawless 
institution, uh, disregarding the Constitution, making decisions on an entity that has acted according to the Constitution and has a law. So who is illegal? An illegal, unconstitutional institution is making decisions on us that, have, that are absolutely constitutional and, and lawful. And in this case, we have also uh, taken uh, you know, this interpretation to international lawyers and courts, and they have already decided that what the KRG is doing is absolutely constitutional, and there is nothing illegal uh, about it. Uh, we have given assurances to our uh, trading partners, to the IOCs that are operating in Kurdistan, that Kurdistan will remain committed to honor the contracts that we have with all our partners. Um, Your Excellency, uh, Mr. Masrui, when you think about the volatility that we've seen in oil prices over the last several weeks since the invasion of Ukraine, can you give us a sense of where you see the market headed? Are we going to continue to see these massive price fluctuations? It's very difficult to predict because there are, there are many unknowns. Um, among them is the uh, GCPA and, and, and the, the, the discussion with, uh, with Iran and when Iran is going to come to the market and what volumes would they bring um, in addition to the uncertainty of how many more barrels we will lose from the group because there is a decline and no one is investing. So unless we have a, a promotion for investments in the hydrocarbon in many of those member countries and others, uh, including the, uh, the shale oil producers, unless we have uh, that clarity and we, uh, we, we get those resources in place, I think it's always going to be uncertain. What uh, His Royal Highness and myself been warning about for years and years now uh, of lack of investment is very relevant today and it's going to catch up with us down the road. So we need, in my view, to, uh, to incentivize investments. We in the United Arab Emirates are putting those, putting investments in place uh, and uh, we will raise the capacity and that's the production capacity of the country to the five billion barrels because we believe in the future more barrels will be needed and we don't see many other countries than us and Saudi Arabia and very few who are putting those resources as countries. The issue that I see as well, the IUCs are not as interested as they used to be in developing more resources. Yeah. And that is, that is driven by the sustainability wave that we had six months ago that uh, made many of the uh, boards of the shareholders of those, of those IUCs telling them limit or decrease your, your, your investments in the hydrocarbon. And that is, to tell you the truth, troublesome because that is not going to put enough resources, even if we, all of our countries, uh, I mean, invest, we need, we need sustainable investments. We believe that there will be growth on demand. We are seeing it. We've been told otherwise, but, it's, uh, but what they told the, the world did not happen. They said, we will be plateauing and yes, the current prices are also, then that's a good thing. They are incentivizing more investments in the renewable energy and we're doing that as well. But I think for the transition, transition will take time 
and transition will need resources and we need investments. Your Royal Highness, um, does the energy transition come at the cost of energy security or vice versa? Shouldn't. I think there is a good room and this is what we are doing uh, ourselves. Uh, so of our, I think probably the, 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 without being too unkind to others, but you could see us, you could see UE as probably the two good models that are trying to do all of the above. Uh, we're very much focused, for example, on, uh, you know, some friend of mine called me somewhere in April 2020 and he said, are you guys serious at net zero, at, uh, at, at prices at uh, below zero, you have made a statement of investing uh, to create another million barrels? I said, no, we, we, we know that this, that this sub-zero prices will create the environment for that million to be used at some point. I must add that with our own energy mix, we will have an additional million of export capacity. So actually, to the world, it will be roughly two million. So I believe we're doing, at least in, in our case, for ourselves and UAE, we're doing, we have the two of the best uh, companies that can produce renewables in the form of aqua and master. We are all engaged in carbon sequesterization. We have, I, as Saudi Arabia, we have been, in fact, we, we are a, a founding member of the Net Zero Forum with the US and Canada and UAE and uh, Norway and Qatar. We have plugged ourselves in the methane initiative. You know why? Because we know that we have a better record, and excuse me, than many other countries, including the US, Canada, with the exception of, of Norway. And I kept telling their minister that Vikings were coming because the Bedouin will come and will take over that. So we have committed ourselves to a net zero uh, 2060 and with technology support and the evolution of technology and the cooperation with everybody uh, uh, in technology development. And again, I have to stress it. We did not put that commitment with a price tag or price support or financing or anything. We were seeking only technological cooperation in delivering us. We have not lost our focus even today with all what is going on. We still, it's cumbersome, it's tough, it's rough, but we can never lose our sight for our future. So what we are doing ourselves is doing both attend to this crisis and maintain our course, that course that will deliver us. What we want from the world or our neighborhood or our colleagues in uh, our neighborhood, come to this country, come to Saudi Arabia, come to the other parts of the GCC country. See how much we're doing in converting our countries to countries of joy, hope, and prosperity. Copy what we have been successful with 
avoid the lesson that we learned from our failures. But honestly, we don't want to be handicapped because we have a duty to this generation and the generations to come that as we have enjoyed our life, we owe it to those generations to come that we, again, their inheritance would be secure, safe, prosperous countries. Gentlemen, we're out of time, but I do have one final question to pose to each of you. This is an international audience. There are some very interesting people coming from the West, certainly from the United States. I'd like to ask each of you to tell me and tell this audience what it is that you would like to see from the United States. Your Excellency, Mr. Masrui. Well, the United States is a very important partner for all of us, and uh, we are very proud of the relationship. I think what we need is we need uh, pragmatism. We need uh, to look at the objective of the energy and what we are asking for, not to tell us do this or do that. We are expert in our field and we have been doing it for a very long time and we've been successful. So uh, we need their understanding that what we are doing is to the benefit of the consumers, to the benefit of the consumers in the United States and to the benefits of the consumers worldwide. We're trying to balance the market and it's not an easy job. We're not the only producers in the world and we, when we say this is the right way to do it, we know it from experience. So trust us. Prime Minister. Well, U.S. is a great friend. Uh, they have been supporting us uh, throughout these years. We would like them to continue supporting us. And uh, of course, we do support any uh, peace initiative anywhere in the world, but we don't want peace with someone to be on the expense of the stability and the security of someone else. We hope that the United States understands that they have many friends here in the Middle East, but the relationship has to be based on mutual respects and uh, uh, main, ma maintenance of the uh, values and interests that serve both sides. Your Royal Highness. You want my personal opinion? Or? What would you give me? Very simple. I missed my good friends all over the U.S. Looking forward to seeing them sometime. If we can have a, a, a period of peace and tranquility where there were, I could go and float around New York, Houston, and Washington. I have a lot of good friends. Uh, I just want to remind everybody. Uh, of a history of 80 years of really doing everything to the book on what we can do to be the provider of sustainable energy. And people need not to forget the past because we could regenerate the future if the pillars of the past can stay with us uh, for the future. There's an argument that could be made that the Biden administration has abandoned Saudi Arabia. Do you agree? I would not 
get myself into political Hadley, you are a fantastic uh, moderator, but my 39 years of government enables me to say, ditch the question and focus <laughs> on the audience. <laughs> Your Excellency, Royal Highness, Prime Minister, thank you so much. Thank you.